From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Dr. Yadira Caraveo has pulled out a victory in Colorado's new 8th Congressional District. Today, we look beyond the current cycle at the promise of more Latino political engagement in the 8th for years to come. Then, what happens to gas stations as electric cars get more popular? That question goes far beyond funyuns and convenient bathrooms. It involves utility companies, surge pricing, and roadside architecture. I'll speak with journalist David Ferris. His story for Politico magazine brought him to a come-and-go outside Fort Collins. And a new film documents the violence and corruption in Denver's anti-gang efforts. Instead of feeling like I was reporting on a crime in this community, I was actually standing in the middle of a crime in progress. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. One of Colorado's two nail-biter congressional races is settled. Democrat Dr. Yadira Caraveo will represent the new district that stretches from Denver's northern suburbs up past Greeley. Her opponent conceded last night. Dr. Caraveo, a pediatrician, becomes Colorado's first Latina in Congress. That's fitting in a way because the district is nearly 40 percent Latino, a historic level of inclusion in Colorado's congressional representation. On Tuesday night, before all the votes were counted, Caraveo said her identity has had an important part in her campaign. Every door that I knock on that has an older uh, Latino gentleman or an older um, Latina, they come at me with pride. Pride that um, somebody from their community is running for a seat, that they could finally have a voice that looks like them, that sounds like them, that has a name like them in Congress, and that has the background that I have. My parents came here in the 70s with this idea that we were going to be able to have a better life than they did in Mexico, and they were able to achieve that by putting four kids through college on a construction worker's salary. She added she recognizes that is no longer possible for many families. Well, across the political spectrum, organizers and some voters see a lot of opportunity for Latino representation in this 8th district, beyond even the current election cycle. Two of them join me. Stacy Suniga leads the Latino Coalition of Weld County. She has served on the Greeley City Council. Angel Merlos is a senior advisor for Libre Action in Colorado. The group had endorsed Republican Barbara Kirkmeyer. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Stacey, I know you're happy about this outcome with Dr. Caraveo winning. How much of that excitement comes from the fact that she is Mexican-American? How meaningful is that? Oh, it has a lot of meaning to me and to many others. Um, You know, in that particular northern part of that district, there's been a lot of, we felt a lot of suppression and uh, a lot of... uh, or not a lot of opportunity, even for uh, a Latino vote. So to see the new redistricting and a Latina taking the Congress seat is just amazing. You're speaking there to the earlier districts where you felt that you yes. didn't have much of a voice. Yeah, we were under a uh, CD4 earlier, and um, it just, you know, I, I just think it was such a gerrymandered area uh, that really cut out the Latino voice. And so with the redistricting, it gave us more hope and opportunity. 
Let's talk about the opportunity that each of you see in this district. Uh, we certainly know that Latino voters don't all vote the same way. So, Angel, why focus on Latino voters as a group? I mean, right now, they have a huge opportunity to really come in and um, be a deciding factor in a community that where they're 40 percent um, of the makeup of the population there. And so I think it's important for us to just focus on them because we in they haven't also been um, as a big group in the past, obviously, they, but every year they've been growing. And so it's important for us to focus on them solely so that they understand that their vote really matters and it's important for them to go out and vote. Do you think that they understand the new power that they have in the 8th Congressional District? I think um, in general, as as a growing community, we are slowly but surely starting to understand the power, but I don't think we're there yet because I don't think we're seeing the numbers like we would like to see of Hispanic um, voters um, voting. And so, and yeah. do you think that's true of this latest cycle? I mean, as you look at the results, what do you see? I mean, they, I, I believe it was the lowest um, uh, voter turnout for the congressional districts in CD8 was. So I'm interested to know what the exact numbers were as far as, you know, how many Hispanic voters actually voted. Yeah, one thing we know about the 8th Congressional District is that it had one of the highest numbers of unregistered voters. I, I suppose you might see that as potential, Stacy. So talk to me about what opportunity you see. Yeah, um, we were, you know, District uh, 8 is uh, about 40% Latino, and uh, but we were the lowest, even in Latino uh, voters, uh, lowest registered. So In Colorado? In, in Colorado mm -hmm. and even in the district. So we uh, really put some work into that as far as, um, you know, some volunteers and, and, and got people registered. Uh, but it, it I agree with Angel, you know, it's going to take a little more education to understand the opportunity that CDA brings. And I think with the Caraveo win, uh, you know, I think that'll open some eyes, you know, and say, hey, you know, I should be participating in this. Angel, do you agree with that? I know it's not the outcome you were looking for, but do no. you think that Dr. Caraveo's win um, helps your effort in any way? I mean, absolutely. I think people are going to put more attention to that, right? And so I definitely agree with that. Let's talk about what the conversation sounded like that you had with voters. I don't know. Will you walk me through one, Stacy? Well, we we did a, a nonpartisan uh, voter registration, so we did not push any candidate. We didn't push any ballot issue. Huh. We just said, you know, this is this is your right. This is your opportunity um, to really have your voice heard. And some people just didn't buy into it uh, because they just felt that oh, my my vote doesn't matter, and that was discouraging. But um, did they say why they thought their vote didn't matter? Not really. Those people really didn't want to have a conversation and just said no. Um, but, um, you know, me being me, I was trying to force a conversation and, and, <laughs> and said, you know, really, th we think this, we had some literature, you know, if you, uh, you know, you have bills, you have, you have a home, you know, you live in a city, you know, you have children. Voting matters because everything, you know, is affected by what the outcomes are and, and you need to put your voice in there. Do you think that you convinced some people to vote who had not previously planned to? Yes, I do. Mm. Yeah, and that was through conversation and just uh, just talking about the importance of why they need to be involved. Angel, will you talk us through one of your conversations? What did it feel like and sound like? 
I mean, for for us, even though like during times we when we were on get out the vote pushing, you know, for people to go out and vote, it was still informing them that there was a new congressional district and that they were in that new district for them to go out and vote. And so, um, but for us, it was still talking about the issues that we were focused on, which was the economy, um, inflation, and just also including their um, health care. Um, so we were really making the connection as to um, the candidate that we were supporting and the issues as to how that was going to correlate in in seeing a better future. And so in the, for this district and, um, you know, for there's it was a it was very persu- you had to persuade because um, you had households where the wife was leaning one way, the husband was leaning one way. So you really had to um, try to, you know, just talk those issues and see what what the concerns were. And same question, do you think that you got someone to vote who had not previously planned to? Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Is there something about the way Latinos have been left out of politics that means there is an opportunity to serve these voters differently, Stacy? Yes. And I think CD8, way it was drawn, the district was drawn, made all the difference. Because I, as I, I look back and I think of Greeley, you know, having been on uh, Greeley City Council and running those campaigns, uh-huh. Greeley is 30% almost 40 well that's like 39 percent latino so we still had kind of the same uh number of demographics for latinos as cd8 but there was no opportunity there in the previous district yeah in the previous district so when they redistrict um and and gave cd8 to greeley adams county um you know those those entities uh it, it made all the difference because the focus was on communities of interest and not political affiliation Angel, what do you think? Yeah, I think so too. Um, when you have a state that's growing in the population, and you have a, you know, this being a new district and being the biggest uh, Hispanic, um, you know, uh, populated district, I think it's um, just very unique for for people for our, in our community. And so, I, I think this is going to really just um, continue the effort of having un- Hispanics understand the value that we bring and also politicians in general, you know. You invoked inflation, you invoked health care, Angel. Stacy. if you'll speak to the issues briefly, what, what problem or issue do you think voters most want to see their new representative take up in CD8, Dr. Caraveo? Well, Latino uh, voters or, or registered voters that I talked to, you know, abortion was a big issue. And I think that was kind of across, uh, you know, across the demographics that, you know, we saw like 80% of Latinos and even in in other races, you know, the abortion access was an issue and what happened recently with Roe v. Wade. Um, So they were concerned about the fact that Roe was repealed. Yes. Uh Yes. Um, Because they wanted to, you know, support. I mean, our granddaughters right now, my granddaughter, uh, it doesn't have the rights that my mother had. And, um, that's concerning to people, you know, taking away rights. And so I, we saw that, of course, economy was, was another factor. Um, and um, uh, border issues, you know, what, what's what been happening or lack thereof uh, down at the border, you know, they want to see some resolution and, and really some support for the families that are down there, you know, stuck at, at, at the fence. Immigration was certainly an issue that came up uh, between the candidates in debates and in interviews and conversations. Angel, is there more that you'd like to add in terms of what 
you think folks in CD8 want Dr. Caraveo to take up, to champion in Congress? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of important issues, but um, above all of them right now, it's still um, the economic issues because... What were um, some of the stories you heard, by the way? Like, what stands out to you in that regard? um, I mean, for us, uh, I mean, I'm sure it was important for some folks, but I I didn't hear much about... um, other issues as much as I still heard about economic issues and yeah, so what were those struggles that you heard I mean the the gas utility bills the uh, they felt also felt like the um, you know when they bought their home their taxes were too much it was like they, they were having trouble understanding how they're paying so much and receiving little whether it be at the grocery store or you know through their taxes that you know they're not seeing the roads be built they're not seeing um, there's always conversations about teachers not being paid correctly, but yet we're increasing our taxes where you're you're charging us more and then inflation's going up, what's going on? And so I think there was a lot of, um, you know, just confusion on, you know, why are politicians not utilizing the, the money like they're supposed to? That is to say, there's a lot of spending, but I'm not necessarily seeing the fruits of it in my backyard. I'm curious, what is next for each of you? So, um, Stacy, you lead the Latino Coalition of Weld County, which is a member of a relatively new group called the Latino Action Council. How do you continue the conversation with voters and uh, perhaps those who did not cast ballots this time around? I mean, uh, are you already thinking about 2024, as daunting as that question may be? Oh, of course we are. Um, we, uh, we're we not stopping, so it's not over for us. You know, the, the election's over, but we keep going with voter registration. We keep going with uh, voter education on, um, you know, what, uh, you know, CD or what, what candidates can do for you and what people in office can do for you. And, and where I, does that happen? Where do you meet voters? Is it always at their homes? Do you need to be in other places? Well, I'm sure we'll develop some events, you know, working with the Latino Action Council. We're all kind of covering Latino issues across the state. Uh, So some of our work won't be specifically in CD8. We may move, I I would say we probably will, uh, you know, get some action going on down in Pueblo, down on on the Western Slope, you know, all of those things. So, uh, you know, we know that this conversation needs to continue. That's very evident to us. And so we're not going to stop. You know, we just had a, a flyer go out that was just horrible against trans people and uh, against um, uh, Dems saying that uh, men want, uh, or people, you know, the Dems want men to use girls' restrooms. Just totally horrible misinformation. And unfortunately, people believe that slop. So, you know, that's part of our education piece is to do your research. Angel, what about you and the Libre Initiative? Where do you go from here? Yeah, I mean, for us, it was um, win or lose. We were going to continue our efforts of uh, driving policy for immigration reform, um, better economic policies uh, that allow families to keep more of their hard-earned money, and also see a a better healthcare that is um, accessible, affordable, but not so much government controlled. And you know, I think right now, even though our the candidate that we were supporting, Barbara Kirkmeyer, didn't win, we still see we're so hopeful that we can reach out to. Yeah, Dira Caraveo, and hopefully we work together as we would have with um, Barbara Kirkmeyer. And so, you know, for us, it's gonna, it's the same plan. And building that relationship. Exactly. With the member of Congress. Thanks to you both. I appreciate your time. 
Thank you. Thank you. Angel Merlos is senior advisor at the Libre Action in Colorado. Stacy Suniga leads the Latino Coalition of Weld County. We talked about political engagement in Colorado's new 8th congressional district, which has elected Dr. Yadira Caraveo. She will be the first Latina to represent this state in Congress. When we come back, the death of the gas station, or is there potential for rebirth? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's front range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Electric cars could mean death for gas stations. The roadside fixtures are already fighting for survival as people switch to battery power vehicles. David Ferris wrote a story about this, a somewhat hidden battle for Politico, and it brought him to Colorado. David, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Ryan. You know, gas stations occupy such a strange place in this country. They've been painted by Hopper. They're an oasis when you need to use the restroom. Uh, They're reviled when gas prices are high. How did you first realize they might be in trouble? Well, I'm a electric vehicle driver um, and I cover electric vehicles uh, as my job. And driving around, one thing I noticed was that you find charging stations at, you know, Walmart and Target. You find them in municipal parking garages. You occasionally find them um, at malls. But you very rarely find them at gas stations. And uh, I found that puzzling. You know, these are outlets that sell fuel. This is the new fuel. Why aren't we seeing these charging stations show up at gas stations? So I started to look into that and found some interesting stuff. Yeah, interesting stuff, which we'll unpack. But, you know, uh, to me, it makes sense that you'd have charging stations at places where you might spend a bit longer, right? Like a shopping center or a Walmart. Uh, What is the answer to why they are not more common at gas stations? Well, we are gonna see a different kind of gas station, but to answer that question, um, you know, I think a a good way to think about it is that when you go to the gas station, you might not think about it, but you're putting a tremendous amount of energy in that tank. And when you have an electric vehicle, you're taking an equal amount of energy and pouring it into your battery. And that means that all that energy is coming from the electric utility. And um, it turns out that getting all that energy to the station and getting into, into your battery is really expensive and uh, is difficult for a gas station to do. We'll talk about the relationship with electric utilities in a moment, but, you know, explain what it's like to charge an electric car, um, the, the time involved. Well, in, in sure. I mean, like there's there's the charging that happens at home um, or at your workplace, which is a, a lower level called level two charging. The kind of thing you might want to you might do at that Target or Walmart or that you might want to do at the gas station is called level three charging. And uh, it's it's not as fast as you're used to with, you know, it's not the three to five minutes you're used to fill your tank. Mm-hmm. Um, it could take 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, depending on the charger and depending on what kind of vehicle you're driving. So you find yourself with time to spend. And that's that's a 
that's a crucial issue um, in terms of providing services to someone who has that time on their hands. That's right. If a gas station is built around the notion of a five-minute trip as opposed to a 35-minute trip. Exactly. Well, that's a pretty fundamental difference. Uh, And so your magazine uh, piece focuses on come and go. This is a company with the idea of quick visits built into its name. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And it now wants to serve electric car drivers, something it's trying out in Wellington, Colorado, north of Fort Collins. What does that store look like now? Well, if you visit, um, you'd be it'd be easy to miss that there's anything different about it. You know, you'd be sitting there filling up your tank and you might notice or you might miss that there's these four big rectangular boxes in the corner in the same, you know, sort of red color scheme as come and go uh-huh. that are meant for um, EV drivers. And right now they're kind of off to the side, but in fact, come and go um, is one of the leaders in figuring out how a gas station serves EV drivers. It's a it's a journey that that they sort of that they were um, pioneers in. Now a lot now that the EV revolution is seeming inevitable, there's a lot of others that are scrambling to get into the game. But they they were first, and some of the um, some of the challenges show up there first. Okay, so you can see the charging stations. Is there Wi-Fi? Are there tables, Barca lounges? Uh, <laughs> there's not. Um, and Come and Go says that this for this particular station, they don't have any immediate plans to do so. But uh, looking at it from the gas station's perspective, um, you know, there's no chairs at a gas station. Yeah. Um, there's it's not a place that welcomes you to come in and spend time. Like no one says, I'm going to go and spend some time at the gas station today. <laughs> <laughs> because there's there's nothing to do there except buy a snack, sell, buy some fuel, maybe buy a lottery ticket. And so they what they're doing, um, not at, in Wellington necessarily, but the, what they're doing elsewhere is is putting in tables, putting in chairs, uh, offering you Wi-Fi. They're offering um, sandwiches. They're offering protein bowls um, that you can order from the road before you get there and trying to sort of capture more of the customer dollar. And in a lot of places that's dovetailing with the charging because of course, um, if someone's obligated to stay there while their battery's being filled, you've got them. Why not Why not give them a place to hang out? Yeah, they're captive. So sell them stuff, I suppose. Um, right. I know that you signed up for a webinar uh, that was held by a trade group representing gas stations and convenience stores. And I, I gather this was a topic of conversation. You know, I also think about these being a real mix of like big corporate gas stations and then small family-owned gas stations. So the picture's got to be real different, you know, based on your ownership, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, the Come and Go operates in 11 states. It's a big it's a big corporation. Um, but in fact, most gas stations are owned by small operators mm-hmm. who operate just one or just a few stations. And in that sense, they're 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 valuable members of the community. You know, providing an essential service. Um, often, it's immigrant commu- immigrants trying to get a leg up um, into a higher part of the economic ladder. And uh, but all these all these groups, big and small, are represented by certain trade groups in Washington D.C. And one of them, which is called NATSO, um, which uh, represents truck stops, held this webinar a while back. 
And I, you know, since I was wondering how gas stations were kind of grappling with EV stations, I EV charging, I went on and watched it and expected to kind of learn about like, you know, what, what they're doing and how they're preparing. And mostly what I heard was a big diatribe against electric utilities. And these weren't like Washington DC talking points. These, they were mad. They were genuinely raw and kind of angry at the utilities. And I was like, I just thought, well, that's weird. Huh. What are they so mad about? Talk about why there's tension there and why when you dipped in on a, an industry webinar, there is so much ire. Well, here's one way to think about it is that there, you know, we've had an electric power. We've had electric, an electric grid for more than a century, yep. you know, serving our buildings. And for a cent- same century, we've had gas stations out there refueling our cars. They've been kind of these two essential energy providers that have kind of been working in parallel sort of rarely intersecting, like obviously electric utility provides electricity to the gas station. The gas station provides gas for the utilities trucks, kind of a good symbiotic relationship. But when the electric vehicle comes along, it really scrambles that relationship Hmm. because suddenly the electric utility becomes the sole supplier of the fuel. And gas stations are used to buying their fuel, like on the open market, they can kind of, they have some freedom over what they can, what they can buy and what price they can buy it at. And now they're sort of, they're captive customers of the electric utility. And it, and it has changed the power dynamic between them drastically. Literally and figuratively, the power dynamic. And and maybe we can talk about the placement of this particular uh, EV charging gas station, this come and go in Wellington, Colorado. It, it, you know, it, its location is very purposely thought out. Why? So, when you're driving around Denver, um, there's a sort of a hidden map you're skating over. And that map is of utility service territories. Um, you know, you, you probably don't know what whatever gas station you go to, you don't know who their electric provider is. But who that provider is matters an enormous amount to whoever's selling you that electric fuel. And the reason for that is that utilities have a special fee that they charge to large power users. And that is based on the few minutes of the month, the few minutes of the billing cycle, that where the power is at its highest peak. Yeah. Um, they, they charge that in order to sort of cover their costs for meeting those huge power needs. Um, and that's it. And the um, EV puts that humble gas station in the league of a factory. You know, it becomes a huge power user because of, of its electric vehicles. And so it, it gets charged that fee. But unlike a factory that can kind of manage its power use and kind of keep it at certain times in order to divide, to avoid really high charges, the gas station is at the whim of electric vehicles and their drivers that sort of descend at any time. And if everybody, if a lot of EV drivers come and plug in at the same moment, those fees go through the roof. And suddenly that gas station doesn't have a hope of making any money off selling you the fuel because the fees are far greater than what they can assess to you to buy that fuel. Mm-hmm. These demand charges. And exactly. So talk about how that resulted in the particular placement of this Wellington come and go. Well, so Wellington is not the only EV charging station that um, come, uh, come and go has in the state. But the one it has chosen to place its charging stations at um, gas stations that are in the territory of utilities that have low fees. 
um, why wouldn't they? You know, like you would you want to have it have a hope of making money. And those are the only places where they can they can um, hope to wrest a profit from it. And so they told me, you know, we're kind of running away from all those places with those high demand charges. Hmm. Um, and uh, there is now this battle unfolding literally all over the country and every single all of the 3000 utilities that serve this country between companies like gas stations that want to sell electric fuel and the electric utilities that provide that fuel over how much it's going to cost because it has it basically can either it makes a difference between whether a gas station makes money or it doesn't i love how you describe that as like this invisible map uh, and my understanding is that this particular come and go then is part of it excels service territory with mm -hmm. relatively low demand charges. But, you know, let me throw out a hypothetical. Why couldn't a gas station build its own wind farm or solar field and sell electricity directly to drivers? I mean, just cut itself off from the monopoly utility company. Well, it's not it's not all that realistic to totally divorce itself from the electric utility. But one really intriguing thing that I think we're going to see is that it gives a huge incentive for that gas station, that provider mm -hmm. to do what's called self-generation, like you said, you know, with a big bank of solar panels or something. And so it give, what that gives them is sort of an environmental halo. But even more importantly than that, it allows them to it gives them the ability to make more money and sort of divorce themselves from whatever the utility is charging. And so you might in the future come across a gas station slash EV charging station that says, you know, well, we're getting all of our power from the sun and we're passing the savings on to you. You know, that's that's actually quite a realistic scenario we might see in the coming years. But that's a huge transition from the traditional gas station. And that's a huge upfront cost easier perhaps for a big come and go, but harder for a family business. And so do you have a long-term prediction for gas stations? Another factor here is that is what kind of gas station we're talking about, because most EV drivers charge at home. And so um, meaning that all the driving you're just doing around, doing your errands, doing your commute are likely to be met by the charger in your garage or the charger at work. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really clear whether we even are going to need gas stations in the city. Um, those stations on the on the road for road trips on the highways, there's a really clear value proposition for those. Um, but one one thing that is interesting, that I think that might get lost in this transition. Yeah, just briefly. Like, like, what did you say? Just briefly. Yes, um, is that that local gas station that's that is owned by that striving, that striving immigrant, you know, might go away. And thus the fight for their lives, as you say, in this piece. David, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. David Ferris writes about the tension between electric cars and gas stations for Politico magazine. We'll link to the article in the Colorado Matters podcast later today. Still to come, the challenge of enlisting gang members to prevent gang violence. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. That so many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that 
everything me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. A gripping new film shines a light on corruption spanning more than a decade in Denver's anti-gang efforts. It claims many of the bad actors are still involved. The film The Holly screens tonight at the Denver Film Festival. It focuses on a part of northeast Denver that was once the center of the city's civil rights movement. CPR's Andrea Dukakis spoke with the director, Julian Rubinstein, who wrote a book by the same name. She asked him more about why he made the film. As I started reporting on the story, it wasn't that long after that I sort of felt like instead of feeling like I was reporting on a crime in this community, that I was actually standing in the middle of a crime in progress. And that I better consider filming what was going on right in front of me because I thought it was pretty revealing and it sort of continued to be revealing. Can you give us a quick synopsis of the film? I know it's a complicated story, but a sense of what it's about. So interestingly, you know, the film is actually a lot different than the book, uh, but it's also based on the same story with the same main character, which is Terrence Roberts, who had formerly been a gang leader. And he had been in prison, got out, turned his life around, and was working as an anti-gang activist, as well as was involved in the redevelopment of this famous landmark, Holly Square, which had important historical roots in the Black community going back to the civil rights movement. And Terrence Roberts is a complicated person in many ways because he had ties with uh, gang members as a former gang member, but he also gave you some deep insights into what was going on with gangs and with anti-gang efforts. Is that right? Yes, that's definitely correct. Terrence was kind of an amazing main character to have this kind of access to because he did inhabit not only some very interesting worlds that we know a little bit more about, he did come into the midst of many of our you know, well-known politicians and leaders in the city and the state because of his work. But he also, yeah, I mean, absolutely had his ties from his childhood and from growing up there to the main criminal element in the neighborhood, which was, you know, well known as the home of Denver's first Bloods gang. You talked about the story being sort of ongoing. Can you explain what you mean? So what happened when I got to Denver and, you know, I'd grown up here, started reporting on this by just flying home a couple times, staying with my mom. And it became so involved because what I thought I'd sort of like was mostly reporting on this thing in the past. It's that Terrence, after this shooting that had happened, that got my attention in which he shot someone at his own peace rally um, in the neighborhood. Uh, And there was a lot of unknown about what happened. I thought I was looking into that, but also of course, what had to happen was that a new group or person had to step in and assume the role he had been in, which happened to be part of a federal anti-gang effort, Project Safe Neighborhoods. And he had an important role running the organization on the ground in this neighborhood where they were trying to deal with the, the gang element and gang crime. And so 
the people that replaced Terrence ended up being quite interesting, I guess you could say, and also ultimately problematic. And uh, as I, you know, stayed there and got to know them as well, I was just following their program along as well as the city's, you know, very public efforts and public meetings to deal with the violence that had, you know, flared up again. And I could see sort of almost from the inside or from the ground level, you know, what was really going on. And it turned out that it was a, a very problematic program that had taken the spot of where Terrence had been working. Take us just to the scene of the shooting at the peace rally and explain what happened there. So in September of 2013, uh, Terrence was organizing a black unity rally or a peace rally that he hoped would bring some sort of disparate elements together in the hopes of what they were all you know, hoping to achieve there, which was reducing gang violence and and getting youth back on track into a more positive direction. We're walking to love everybody. We're walking to unity. Everybody, black, white, Hispanic, Christian, Muslim, Jew, Gentile, anybody. We love this community. We love everybody. And I I should add that that very night, Terrence, who had become the public face of this uh, redevelopment of Holly Square, was supposed to move his uh, office into the new Boys and Girls Club that had just been built there with his support. And instead, he spent the night not moving in, but in jail because he admittedly had shot someone who happened to be a gang member at his own rally that night. Um, And it was... At least to me, it made me wonder what could have led this person to shoot someone at this particular time. And of course, it was a story that was being covered in in the media in Denver. And when I started reporting, that was another element that was sort of different than what I was hearing publicly was that I was hearing that Terrence had actually been attacked that day and that not only was he saying that, which didn't seem to be given a lot of credence in the media, but many others were also saying that. And so that was one of the things that sort of motivated me to try to go deeper into what actually went on there. And in fact, the way I decided to do it, at least for the book, was to really understand the neighborhood better and try to tell its history leading up to this incident. And this is Northeast Denver, and you came to feel strongly that Terrence Roberts shot this gang member in self-defense, and he was ultimately found not guilty. It took a while, but there did uh, turn up to be a lot of evidence that I came into really in my personal reporting uh, from witnesses who uh, were willing to come forward. You'll see a lot of how it plays out in the movie, as well as other things that you know kind of reveal themselves. Uh, I'll just guess I'll say that among the people who moved into Terrence's office were some who both had ties to the police as well as who were involved with calling for actually an attack on Terrence on this particular day in question. You're able to film some very private moments, including a scene with Terrence Roberts and his defense attorney. Could you set that up? This scene is... While the case was going on, Terrence was offered a plea deal. And this is, you know, his lawyer sort of trying to tell him that he should consider taking this deal because the reality was 
he was facing a long prison sentence in a case that there was really not a lot of optimism that he would necessarily win. He had admitted shooting this guy five times. All they got is a person with a video, and they've got someone that says, you shot Hassan. Oh, wait a minute. They don't need the person that says that you shot Hassan because you say you shot Hassan. I was afraid of Hassan, and if I plead to anything, it takes away my right to a trial by jury, and I'm not going to take a deal to go to prison over what these men wanted to have happen to me, to take my position and take my life, even the police possibly. What we need is to be able to show the jury why your fear was legitimate. I don't know what to say, but let's see if a jury of 12 thinks that I didn't have a right to defend my life. And that's it. And I need y'all to do that. I need y'all to take me to trial and fight for my life. And you talk about this vacuum that was created uh, when Terrence Roberts left. Talk about who came to fill his place. Well, this was what was really interesting. And in a lot of ways, the story itself was sort of illustrative of how two different sides can have different opinions about what is the best way to deal with public safety or violent crime in communities of color where there's a lot of policing involved. And on one side, Terrence felt that he wanted to do more gang prevention work, like trying to actually find alternative ways to get youth before they're in gangs into other programs and all that. And then a traditional law enforcement approach would be to sort of deal with it from an active intervention way, which can include everything, including police operations, undercover operations, ultimately resulting in arrests and a real more of a kind of a crackdown, um, hoping that that will, you know, really reduce the numbers of, of gang members or crime. Terrence had been there doing his thing, and it was not what law enforcement actually wanted. And there was a lot of tension between him and law enforcement over this question of how to handle things. Well, when he left, it turned out that the people who moved into the office, not only some of them had close relationships to law enforcement, but they were also active gang members. And it turned out that some of them also had ties to what happened to Terrence on the day of the shooting in terms of getting younger gang members to jump him on that day. And so what did you conclude about those anti-gang efforts after Terrence Roberts left? I mean, one of the things that I would say that first and foremost I would conclude is that this needs public scrutiny. This is part of a national conversation right now and has been really for decades, but even especially in the last couple of years as violent crime is rising, is the question of should active gang members be able to work either for law enforcement agencies or on anti-gang efforts? I mean, it does seem puzzling why they would seem to be an asset, yet again and again, including in Denver and elsewhere, law enforcement, for, for various reasons, likes this idea because They have like close relationships with these guys. They can sort of follow crime. They can potentially help solve crime that way. But on the flip side, the problem is that these youth who are potentially vulnerable to joining gangs, they look up to people. And if someone that they're supposed to look up to as someone who's supposedly, you know, in a role of helping them is actually an active gang member, 
that person is not legitimately trying to get dissuade them from joining a gang or from getting away from crime. So in my view, I, in my conclusion would be it doesn't really make sense. And I think this could be one of the most dramatic examples of what can go wrong when active gang members are actually entrusted with roles of being anti-gang activists and, of course, working with public money to do something that they may not be well qualified to do. Tell us about the scene in the film where you go to Holly Square with Terrence Roberts and what happens there. It, it's a scene where we go back with Terrence for the first time this, since man. the shooting. And he encounters first right people hugging him and running over to him. And, and then he's shooting a couple baskets. And then the next thing you know, this sort of lovely scene is broken by the voice of a, of a, of a large man yelling to Terrence. Um, at which point the whole situation, and I was standing right there, starting to duck very quickly because it got very quickly, got very tense. Terrence and his friends started yelling at this guy. The guy's yelling back at them. And then everyone's sort of running for cover and getting the hell out of there. And to me, it's a scene that appears early-ish in the movie, and it was so symbolic to me of, like, the Holly itself. It's a place where there's a lot of complicated tensions and feelings and things can get dangerous very quickly out of nowhere. The book came out a while back and uh, the film is being screened. Are these same anti-gang efforts going on today? Yes, there's always changes because they like to change things and say, now we're doing it this way and they're learning from this and that. And of course, hopefully they are. But um, really it has yet to be seen whether or not Denver is for or against the use of active gang members in anti-gang programs. They've refused to answer that question directly. Uh, but the film, like the book, thankfully, I, I, I didn't end either of them before the incredible events of 2020. And a, the uh, both the film and the book don't end until 2021. They're really current Right. And Terrence Roberts was very much a part of the protests after the murder of George Floyd. That's right. And uh, he became a big part of that. And in fact, he'd already been it, since 2019 when Elijah McClain was killed. He was one of the main protesters trying to get momentum for that. And they had, you know, a few things and a few protests. But after George Floyd died, of course, there was a it, they were able to pipe that right into all of that pent up anger and frustration with the way things were and and also apply it to what happened in Elijah's case. So yes, it carried on through that. And then as you uh, may remember, including even that Terrence was arrested himself on a bunch of charges for ultimately for leading peaceful protests, uh, all of those charges were, were ultimately dropped. This film is coming out after the murder of George Floyd um, and a lot of racial reckoning in this country. And there's been some criticism by people that the book was written by a white guy um, and it largely looks at a situation in in the city and also in the African-American community. What do you say to those folks who would criticize you about that? So, I mean, of course, I'm happy to talk about it. And it was a challenge that I took very seriously all throughout for both the book and the film. I wanted to be extra sensitive to 
blind spots that I would have. And so what I did was surround myself with African-Americans, both from the community and nationally, who saw the importance in the story. And I really also want to add that, you know, the people who are in the movie and in the book themselves are from the community and themselves risk their safety to make sure that this story got out. So we have all along been trying to champion this film because it's the stories of those people who are the most voiceless, the most forgotten, and the most in need of help who lose if this story doesn't get out. That is Julian Rubinstein speaking with Andrea Dukakis. He directed the film The Holly and wrote the book by the same name. The film screens tonight as part of the Denver Film Festival. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Sam Brash. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.